This right here is the Twitter. You are now listening to Twib FM. Real talk, real awesome. Finally, I'm finally free. Finally, I'm finally me. Finally, I'm finally free. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. My name is Jamie. I am your host. Thank you guys for tuning in. Very, very excited for this show tonight. We have actress Santana Dempsey on to talk to us about a myriad of things. Um, but most importantly, uh, the work that she is doing with the Mixed Roots Foundation, also as a working woman of color in Hollywood, and also growing up biracial and, and also um, being a part of um, an agency that helps with, with adoption. So uh, we'll go into her bio and speak to her shortly. Um, but before we do, I just want to make a couple of announcements. I want to say thank you so much to Professor Ann Jameson, Princeton University professor uh, who teaches a fan fiction course. She invited myself along with three other great women, Emily Nussbaum of The New Yorker, Elizabeth Minkle of The Statesman, and also Heidi Tandy, who's an intellectual property attorney, to appear on a panel called Where Do We Go From Here? And we talked about fan fiction, media publishing, and the entertainment industry, and it was a really great time. I got a chance to meet a lot of you guys that I tweet with on the live tweets, so shout out to all you guys that appeared and got a chance to meet and greet with you guys. Uh, the recording for the panel will be up shortly on Princeton's website, so check that out when you get a chance. And again, I just want to give a personal shout out to Professor Ann Jamison. It was a great chance to really be able to meet the folks over at Princeton, see the campus, beautiful campus, um, great town, um, and, and thank you for inviting me on as a guest. Um, also, our website, blackgirlnerds.com, we are always looking for content. So I do want to just put a call out there that we are looking for contributors, and also um, we're looking for someone to help out with the newsletter. So um, our great intern, uh, Laura McEwen, who is also the moderator of our Black Girl Nerds podcast account, um, she is going off uh, for the summer for a great job opportunity and really do need some help with someone to help um, with the newsletter. So if you are interested, if you have experience with MailChimp, uh, MailChimp.com, um, please, please give me a email. Let me know. Jamie at BlackGirlNerds.com is my email address, and I'd, I'd love to be able to have you help out BGN. And we also are in need of co-hosts and also contributors. We're always open to have contributors um, guest blog on the website. And blog ads. If you haven't done so already, feel free to check out the blog ads. If you have a book that you're writing, if you have a service or something that you are promoting, you're selling shirts, whatever it is, you should promote them on our website. We get a lot of penetration, a lot of traffic. Um, folks of all kinds look at, look at our website for various things. So if you go to the right sidebar, you click on that link, you can purchase ad space on our website. And thank you to everybody who has done that. And thank you all to who have decided to support us financially by use of donations through PayPal. Um, they are always appreciated, and um, they do go a long way. So thank you for that. All right, so I am going to introduce our guest, Santana Dempsey. Santana is an ambassador for the nonprofit Mixed Roots Foundation, which helps to bring awareness to anyone touched by adoption. Currently, she is working on an interdisciplinary art project called Somewhere in Between that celebrates identity and diversity. Santana Dempsey has made a notable impression as a versatile mixed-race actress. She has made a remarkable name for herself as an actress, writer, and mixed-race advocate in the Hollywood industry. Recently, Santana was cast as a leading role in the Lifetime movie Shaker Point that came out in February of 2015. And she will be in this film alongside talents such as Corbin Blue, Lil Romeo, Tamala Jones, Shanika Knowles, Mike Beach, and Don Lewis. Santana is also co-starring in the third season of HBO's hit drama The Newsroom and as well as DirecTV's new drama Kingdom. Her other credits can include French Dirty, Evolve, English Vinglish, Scholastics Read 180, and Courtside. As a University of Missouri alumnus, 
Santana is a veteran of the New York City's primary stages, Intar, Soho Rep, Puerto Rican Traveling, Theater, and Carnegie Hall. She also wrote and starred in the critically acclaimed one-woman show, The Other Box, that is set to be performed this November in Los Angeles. Santana is also an ambassador for the nonprofit Mixed Roots Foundation, which helps to bring awareness to anyone touched by adoption. And currently, uh, she's working on an interdisciplinary art project called Somewhere in Between that celebrates identity and diversity. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Of course. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to talk with you. Thank you. Well, first of all, um, I, I want to ask, you, you call yourself an adoption and mixed race advocate. Can you explain to us what that is exactly? Yeah, I mean, I put them together because I'm mixed race and I'm also adopted. Um, but I'm really an advocate just to bring awareness to people that are mixed race and kind of give um, light and give um, give us a name. I feel like um, everyone else kind of has their box and people that are mixed race, any kind of mixed race, really don't. And we don't quite fit. So for me, I feel like talking about it and kind of being part of this movement is really important to me to just inspire other people to own who they are and not... Um, have to be boxed all the time. And as for the adoption advocate, it's honestly just to bring awareness and break the stigma of adoption and to tell people my story again in hopes to give others that don't have a voice a voice. Do you find that there's other organizations that's doing what you're doing or is it few and far between? You know, it's getting, there are organizations, everyone, there are, um, I feel like there isn't exactly one that encompasses everything that I kind of, um, you know, believe in, but I feel like it's getting better each year. The more I talk about it, the more I actually hear other people that have something that they're doing or some kind of organization or nonprofit, which is really cool because five, 10 years ago, that's not how it was. And so I feel like it's, you know, evolving at a very rapid pace. And tell us about the Mixed Roots Foundation. What inspired you to become an ambassador for that organization? You know, I met, so when I first moved out to Los Angeles a couple of years ago, I really wanted to do something bigger than myself and outside of the entertainment industry. And I knew that it needed to be something with my passions and things that I, I identify with, which is again, being mixed race and being adopted. And uh, someone, I think, just referred me to this woman named Holly, who is the founder of Mixed Roots Foundation. We had a drink out here in Hollywood, and we kind of just fell in love with each other. Um, <laughs> she started this, yeah, she started this organization about five or six years ago. She is a Korean adoptee, and she's an adult. And the thing that this organization is so different, what I love about it, is because it really celebrates adult adoptees. Once you're adopted, People forget that you are adopted for life. There are so many um, pre-adoption uh, resources and organizations that help in the adoption process. But once you're adopted in your place, it's done. It's like bye-bye. Where someone that has, you know, a terminally ill disease or, or not even a terminally ill or almost anything else, there's post resources and there's not with adoption. Mm -hmm. It's very odd to me and you know, being adopted is is a lifelong journey, and this is one of the first organizations that really celebrates that and celebrates and helps uh, give resources to adult adoptees and know that we're not alone. And there are so many things that come up when you're adopted, you know, and that you go through with your family and things change. And so it's a great organization that just celebrates identity, unity, and diversity, and I love that. What kind of, is there specific resources that they offer that's different from other adoptions um, without mixed race candidates where they look at things like representation, that they're more sensitive to, um, they have more cultural sensitivity, if you will. Is there specific resources that they offer? Oh, I can't, honestly, I can't think of anything uh, like a specific resource. Um, they really, they kind of, they embrace everybody. Mm -hmm. Um for instance, I mean, I don't know any other any other posts besides us support groups, mm -hmm. um, which are a couple out here that are great. That are there's some teen support groups for kids that are in foster care and that have been adopted, and adult support groups uh, for adoptees. Um, but Mixed Roots Foundation again, 
Well, actually, they're the ones who introduced me. I'm in a support group um, right now, and they're the ones who introduced me to the support group. So, again, they're just great at being able to identify your interests and what you want to get involved with and then place you and help you do that. They also support me in different things that I want to do. Um, they help me with resources and that, and they want to just see adoptees grow within the community. And where is their information for those that are listening that want to learn more about Mixed Roots Foundation? Yeah, I believe um, it's mixrootsfoundation.net. Um, you can look it up. I believe it's net, guys. If it's not, try org. They're the only ones that are out there. Um, and, yeah, look them up. They're great. I think they've got an event coming up. Um, we do every year a Dodgers event here in Los Angeles. Um, I believe it's in May. And um, they're always looking to partner with people, too. And it's not, again, just being – you don't have to be mixed race um, mm-hmm. and adopted. They, they celebrate all kinds of adoption, but it was just one of the first ones that I've seen that also really celebrates transracial adoption, meaning that your parents are of a different race or not of the same exact race as the child that they adopted. Wow, okay. This is good. So that, that includes international adoption, domestic, all of that, you know? Right. Well, I wanted to talk a little bit about you. You you had a starring role on HBO's The Newsroom, mm-hmm. um, which I, I love that show. Um, tell us a little bit about your experience on, on the show and, and how you got your start there. Yeah, we actually filmed that last year, last year this time. And it just came out this November. Um, and it was such a crazy experience. It was one of my first roles, um, first on a drama and second just – on such a huge, I mean, it's HBO number one. And then two, the newsroom is such, I mean, Aaron Sorkin, I'm just obsessed with him. I think his writing is amazing. The actors are so good. So I was yes. just so happy to, to get the audition. I feel like a lot of people don't realize uh, that aren't actors, how difficult it is to just get in the room for a show of such high, um, of, of, of the caliber, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So in that, honestly, I'm just super proud of myself for just getting the audition and then, you know, having the callback, um, you know, having Anthony Hemingway, who is an African-American man. He's a director. He was in the room and Aaron Sorkin and the other producers. They were so loving and kind, um, just giving me the opportunity. And the day that we shot, it was wild. I thought I was doing everything to Jeff Daniels' character because that's how it's written. But uh-huh. in actuality, the way that they're filming it is me directly to camera and Aaron, not Aaron Sorkin, and um, Jeff Daniels' character watching me from the newsroom. And oh. I'm kind of reporting on, because I run the Boston Marathon and I'm one of the uh, the victims in it, give it, who actually survives, giving my account of like the bombing and what happened. So I'm in a state of shock and everything. So doing it, I wasn't acting with anybody. It was so challenging and it was the most nerve wracking acting experience of my life. Um, (laughs) It was just, there were like 30 people in front of me. They had so many extras. They had, we created Boston and I'm in Hollywood. We, we, we shot it at Gower Studios. So it was just such a different experience for me and I'm really grateful for it. But I have to admit, I was such a ball of nerves. So this was your first time acting, you know, on your own without another actor there to feed lines off of. Did they have you like a, in a green screen or what, what did the actual no, they had me on the street. scene look like? No, oh, they on the street. Me, okay. They had me on the street. Like they recreated, uh, Boston, like the, the bombing. And then he, you know, and I was kind of giving my account and then it's through his lens though, of watching me on screen in the newsroom, you know, cause yeah. that's his job. But I thought the way it was written, he was going to be interacting with me, but it was cut back and forth. So it was just, I just had a whole completely different view of what was going to happen. Um, so I was a little caught off guard, um, <laughs> but in a great way. You know, it was yeah. completely fine, but I definitely was nervous. <laughs> Did you get a chance at all to meet Jeff Daniels? I, I love his work. Yeah. Oh, he's so good. You know, he's one of my favorites because he can do drama and comedy seamless, yes. seamlessly. Mm-hmm. And not that many people can do that, and I commend him always, and it's the kind of actor I aspire to be. Um, but, yeah, I got to meet him. Um, he was just wrapping up as I was coming on set, and so I shook his hand, and he, you know, just said if I need anything, you know, shout out to everybody, and he was just so, so kind. Oh, that's awesome. We and got- then I saw Olivia Munn, yeah, like, walking past. I wanted to run up to her and hug her because I just <laughs> think she's so, like, 
hot and, and gorgeous <laughs> and talented, but I yes. from doing that. I did not do that. <laughs> I know I, I could see myself that. fangirling over Olivia Munn. Oh, I could I see totally that. I totally would. I totally <laughs> That's awesome. Um, we have a question here on Twitter from our BGM podcast Twitter account. Um, wants to know, when did you first become interested in acting professionally? My parents would probably say right after they adopted us when I was like seven or eight, they used to do a musical and a straight play a year just for community theater. And I would go with them and I like kind of became obsessed. However, you know, I don't know anything about that then. I don't remember that. But in college is kind of where I formalized it. I ended up going to the University of Missouri, and I wanted to study news broadcasting, but I realized after about three months of being in class that I didn't want to tell the news or give the news. I wanted to be the news. And then I was like, okay, well, I better get my butt to the theater department, you know, and, and make this happen. So that's really when was in college when I formalized it. Nice. You uh, starred in a large amount of films and TV shows, and you work as an advocate. How do you balance the time between your work and your passion? You know, lately, if you want a really honest answer, it's been really challenging um, because I'm still up and coming. And the thing with that is a lot's coming your way, and I'm a yes girl. So I really say yes to almost everything. In that, you don't have time. So I've just kind of found that February especially, I did not balance it very well um, at all. Um, <laughs> so I just didn't. I was just over overextended, and it becomes stressful. And then it's kind of I had meltdowns in places I shouldn't be having meltdowns. And I was like, oh, this is what it feels like because you're not a movie. I'm not a movie star yet, you know, and meaning I don't have a personal assistant or people doing things for me left and right. I still right. get my groceries. I still do everything. Right. I just now have added stuff to my life that, that I'm, you know, I pick myself up and take myself to this place and this place and this place. And in that, I found it to just, um, be a lot. But one thing that I've noticed is I've just kind of, I have to pick and choose and I have to say no to things. Um, right. and I really try hard to meditate, to stay grounded and make sure honestly to like work out and have some kind of a same routine every day that really helps me balance everything. I suffer from the same thing. I got to say the whole being a yes person right? is so me. And I, oh. I think that's something that I still am working on to this day because I'm always saying yes to things when I know good and well. I don't have the time in my schedule to do it, but I feel bad to say no because I don't want people to think, oh, well, you know, maybe she just thinks she's too good to have That's what time for me. Too good. That's what I, I just, sorry, I moved with everybody. I just moved my, my desk. I didn't mean to. But yeah, me too. I feel like that, yeah, I, people are going to think, can I say, can I say the B word? Sure. Okay. Yeah. I think people are going to think I'm a bitch. And I'm like, yeah. I'm not a bitch. Or like even my friends. That's the thing, honestly, the people that suffered the most were my friends and family because I didn't have time to respond to emails, to answer phone calls that they would send me because I'm trying to, like, do business or go to this event or go to this audition. And then I'm like, well, I'd rather my family think I'm a bitch because they're always going to love me than, like, other <laughs> people, you know? But yep. it's such a balance, girl. And I've been saying more no lately because I had so many meltdowns January through February of just kind of not wanting to do certain things and feeling overwhelmed. And I was like, well, you chose to do this. You chose it. Nobody forced you. Yep. Yep. So I feel you. The struggle is real. It is yes. so real. <laughs> <laughs> the yes struggle is real. Uh, we got a question here from Black Girl Geeks on Twitter. Wants to know, what is your favorite musical and play? Ooh. Oh my gosh. I have so many. I don't even know where to begin. Well, I love Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. Ooh. I say roof or roof. Um, <laughs> I do my straight play because I'm from Missouri. So we say roof, but I say roof because I've learned. Okay. So, um, I love that play. Um, I love musicals. Oh my gosh. Do you guys know the musical Parade? It's an old one. Um, but it's, I mean, it's about the Jews and the African-Americans and lynching, and the music is so good. Um, I also love West Side Story. Me too. I love Chorus Line. 
I just have so many musicals, like obsessed with musicals. My parents played so many um, soundtracks from musicals growing up. So I became a total, total, total nerd on musicals. Oh my God, Um, me too. (laughs) I need another play though. What's another play I really like? Gosh, I feel like I like a lot of new works. Um, I don't know why I said a cat on a hot tin roof. I just, it was just so sexy. It's just so sexy. <laughs> it's just good. You know, it's just a yeah. good, solid play. Yeah, that's what I got for you right now, but I could go on. Yeah. I, when I think, whenever that question is asked, I always just defer to musicals because my favorite theatrical productions are always the musicals, but plays are hard yeah. to think of. Like if I was to think of my favorite, it'd probably be A Raisin in the Sun. Because that yeah, was like my first sense. monologue as a kid and on, you know, in the theater. I was, um, I was a thespian in high school. Ooh, um, <laughs> I love that. Thespian 1625 represent. Um, <laughs> but a raisin in the sun, um, was, was my, my monologue, um, beneath this, uh, monologue. So yep. I, I really, that's, that's the first one. But yeah, musicals. Oh God, I can go on for hours. Me about music. too. And I don't know because I actually did more plays, um, not musicals. You know, I do love For Color Girls, Who Committed Suicide When the Rainbow Is Enough. I love, um, that's a straight yeah. play that also, what's a choreo poem play? But mm-hmm. that's um, one of my favorites. I think the writing is so out of this world. It's so empathetic. It's so raw. It's the kind of theater that I love doing. Um, and I love theater that allows you to be able to move and express yourself, you know, physically right. and and um, verbally. So that's one of my favorites as well. Yeah. Nice. Nice. I love it. You're also an abstract painter and, um, okay, let me see if I can pronounce this right. Is it collagist? Yeah, exactly. Collage. So you just say it's a collage. Okay. Collages. Okay. So yeah, where where can we find some of your work? This is, you. Yeah. So I haven't been a woman of many skills here. Yes. The yes thing. So I started painting, honestly, what is it called? Uh, you know, when you paint to kind of heal yourself. What's that? There's a word for it. Um, um, oh man, people are going to really, or, uh, it's like, I'll think of it. I'll think of it. Okay. I'll think of it. But it's, it's, there's, there's a, you can study it as well. Um, but like any kind of art, uh, form helps people like heal, like in therapy and stuff. Um, art therapy, boom. Gosh, Ah. art therapy. (laughs) Okay. So I kind of, without realizing it years ago, I was doing art therapy and I started getting into painting, because it was one way that I felt I could express myself without being judged. And I could put my emotions into something and people thought it was cool. And I loved mixed media collage. I loved taking, when I moved in, uh, I lived in New York City for a bit. I would take things off the street and I would turn them into art. And I loved it. So I had my first uh, showing in Soho in New York. Um, and it was amazing. And I actually have uh, artwork in two places in New York. At the Cupping Room Cafe in Soho, I did um, a collage, an abstract collage in both of their bathrooms. And then another one at a theater company I belong to that's called Intar, which is in the 50s um, and like 10th Avenue. And I did a whole big mural that is kind of, um, I took all of their old playbills and uh, different uh, quotes and stuff from the 70s. They were one of the first Latino theater companies in New York City at the time and a huge um, Mexican, Cuban, Puerto Rican influence. And I made this huge, beautiful historical collage that is in their lobby. So that's ah. where you can find some of my stuff. I love it. I have not had time at all since I moved to LA to do anything, which I'm trying to change that. Um, but yeah, I don't have any professional experience with it. It's all just kind of been self-taught. Uh, and I just feel good doing it. That's amazing. Oh, well, cool. Seriously. Like, <laughs> you, you, you teach yourself to do that and then it's like on, you know, display in New York City. That's, that's awesome. That's really Yeah, when I did say it, I thought I sounded kind of cool. But at the time, I didn't mean to like do it cool. But I do, it does sound cool. Especially like Soho, right? Like, ooh, I have something. Yeah. <laughs> in the hipster part of town. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> so, so while you're doing research on you and your story, um, you know, you've had some negative, well, while I was doing research, I should say, I was mm-hmm. doing research on you and your story. And I listened to a podcast that you were on. You you were talking about some of your negative experiences growing up as a mixed race child, um, where you questioned your own racial identity. Can you discuss that with us briefly? 
Definitely. And just so you know, I'm really open about this. So you're asking me a very broad um, question. So um, if you want me to elaborate on something very, very, very specific, let me know. But I'll just jump in. And is that make sense? Yes. If I don't absolutely. answer it, you want to ask, just, yeah, just ask me. Um, so yeah, the thing is, I'm adopted. My parents that adopted me are both white. My sister and I, you know, we're mixed race. Our birth mother was Caucasian. Our birth father was an Afro, um, Caribbean guy that we didn't really know. And we grew up in a town called Hannibal, Missouri. And the thing about Hannibal, it's right on the border of the Mississippi River. And so across the Mississippi is Illinois which was a free state, and Missouri was a swing state, um, but most of the time was red, uh, meaning that people owned slaves. But so it was a really, meaning there's a lot of racism, that's what I'm trying to say, uh, right. in Hannibal specifically. And there were only two kinds of people growing up. It was black people and white people, and very much as like a stereotype that I I even saw on TV, it's like the black people lived on the south side, and then the, the white people lived everywhere else. Mm-hmm. Like literally that's how it was. My cafeteria in my high school was segregated. There was a little section where black people just seemed to like migrate towards and then everybody else sat everywhere else. And my parents are white. I identified as white because I didn't know anything else. Right. And with with that, I was beat up um, a lot in high school and some in middle school by, by black girls. Uh, I had my hair. It was always the hair thing. Literally, mm-hmm. My hair defines me so much in the society that I wish sometimes I could just shave it off. Mm. Um, you know, I, yeah, I just remember, you know, them saying, oh, things like, oh, you know, you think you white, but you got nigger blood in you just like us, you know, got called Oreo a lot. Um, just really bad. And, you know, I got beat up on the bus, uh, by, a girl because I ended up standing up for myself and uh, she punched me in the face like six times. So it was after so many years of this and I was really good in school. I also was a huge athlete. So I was always kind of in the public eye. Uh, my parents, again, they're, you know, affluent, um, you know, attorneys in, in my town. And I don't, in hindsight, I see that it's, jealousy and uh, miscommunication and not quite understanding the other. But during that time, I just didn't understand why the girls had to single me out so much and why we couldn't relate. And I got to the point where I didn't want to be them. Why would I want to be a girl that's hitting me? Why would I want to be a girl that tells me, you know, by me getting good grades, that that's a negative thing. Mm -hmm. And Physically, mentally, the things that they were saying were so opposite than like my family. I couldn't connect either. And I had a prejudice and I became, I mean, I guess it would be racist. I mean, I feel like the things that I thought, if I, if I didn't know myself, I would think that person's racist towards some black women. And again, this is all me thinking of it now. You know, I didn't think this clearly when I'm 15. Um, but yeah, it did. I did not want to be black. Anything but being a black woman was the last thing I wanted. And it's oh, horrible. Um, but, yeah, that was my kind of experience in my town. And the great thing that my parents did was they had us travel mm-hmm. once to twice a year out of the country to see other people, to know that it's not just the small town and that there are other, you know, people of all different colors, you know, and, and backgrounds that are lovely and beautiful and I really do believe your environment has a lot to do with who you become. Right. Right. Did you find that, um, well, when did you come to a place where you began to embrace your racial identity and, and love who you are and sort of, you know, put yourself outside of the experiences that you had as a kid and know that that was just, you know, kids being angry and it wasn't something that played on you know, people that thought that all the time of being white or black or or indifferent. It started, the healing kind of started um, in college. Once I was exposed to my first African-American professor, his name, his name was Professor Clyde Ruffin. And um, I ended up joining the, it was called like the world cultural uh, department for theater. And it was basically just, you know, everyone that wasn't white (laughs) kind of. Um, And 
he really was one of the first people that called me a woman of color. And the way he said it, it sounded so strong and powerful and sexy. And I, I, and he was so eloquent the way, way that he spoke and he was such a good actor and teacher. I loved it. So I think it was being exposed to just, you know, very strong, confident, you know, um, African-American people, teachers. So, and then through, through school and doing all of these, you know, plays all by, um, you know, uh, writers of color, I learned right. it. And it was so like, oh my gosh. I understand that woman. I understand that black woman. That's me too. My parents don't get that. And the separation started then slowly though. It was not an overnight. It has taken me to this day. I have triggers. I mean, I will Mm. tell anyone to this day, I will walk into a room. If it is all African-American men and women, I get a little self-conscious to this Mm. exact day. I think, oh God, are they going to think I'm too white? Oh God, Mm. am I not going to fit in? And that's my own shit. Nobody else puts that, you know, upon me. That's my shit. And, you know, I'm very aware of it. And I just have to communicate that and also do a lot of, uh, just a lot of checking myself and knowing like these aren't the same girls as, you know, 10, 15 or whatever years ago, you know, and, and that's hard. I think, you know, childhood and things that you're exposed to for a long time, that stays with you. And it's yeah. a lot of, a lot of therapy and a lot of just self love, um, and getting to the root of it that I believe, um, and having, and replacing it. That's what I've been learning. Having friends that are of color and, and replacing that judgment, those things that happened to me as a child with positive and different experiences. That's what's helped me the most. Right. Right. I really appreciate you sharing that story. I myself, um, had experiences with colorism. Um, as a kid, but mine was very unique because um, I'm a light-skinned black woman, but many of the girls that teased me as a kid, they were also light-skinned or huh. lighter-skinned than me. Yeah. Okay. And they, I think, were trying to overcompensate for their blackness by picking okay. on me. So yeah. actually, most of my girlfriends growing up were darker-skinned, and all of the light-skinned girls, one uh, girl in particular, she was biracial, she was very fair skin, long hair down to her back. She would tease me all of the time. And I, I never understood that. And I wrote a blog post about it on my, on my website, but um, a lot of people thought, wow, that's very interesting. But that was really my experience. So there, there are those experiences where there are, you know, women of color and black women that have been teased by other black women who are yeah. light skinned yeah. that I guess, you know, want to feel secure in their blackness by, um, you know, putting that, that hatred onto someone else. Um, crazy. yeah, it, it, so it really wild. is crazy. And it, it is sad that sometimes a lot of us, and you know, some of us do still carry it to this day, but it's good that we have exposure to communities where there are black women that are very positive and empowering and embracing our identity and loving ourselves. Cause I think that's the biggest thing is, you know, how we love ourselves and how we embrace our blackness and our beauty. I think a lot of that has to do with um, all of that judgment that we've experienced as a kid because it, it's really insecurity at the end of the day. That's what oh, it it's is. really all about. That's what most, you know, that's what, I mean, that's what bullying is. I and mean, what we're talking right. about essentially is bullying. It's colorism, but it, but it is bullying. You right. know, that is what it is. So, and all of that stems from being insecure and within yourself. And that's where hate breeds and that's where discrimination breeds and, I don't want that. You know, I don't want to be a part of that. And I always just, especially lately, try to check myself and go, if I'm feeling that way or that someone's doing that towards me, first mm-hmm. off, make sure it's like really happening. And then if it is, showing love. Like, and love to me is empathy. Understanding that, you know what, maybe they had something similar happen to them and I'm triggering to them. Right. And not, not judging and, and trying to actually be very compassionate and, and telling your story and hopefully they'll tell their story. And I feel like that's where the healing also um, starts with communication and real empathy. Yes, absolutely. Do you find that mainstream media plays a role on negative stereotypes of people of color or oh, does it start oh, with your upbringing? Oh girl. Well, it's a combination of both. I mean, 100% it's both to me. It's yes. 
growing up, I didn't see me on TV. If I saw a black person or a Latino, they were either robbing a store, killing somebody, talking mm-hmm. not the way that I spoke or grew up. And I did not identify with that. It was always the negative, always this brooding, fearful thing. I re- or or it was sexy prostitutes for women, and you know, having women be the ones that are the lovers for the men, you know, and it, it was it, yeah, and that still exists today. It is so much better now, like so much better, especially the past you know year or two. But I believe, yeah, that has a lot to do with it. Um. And then also, like I said, it's both. It's the home. It is how you grow up, what you are told, and your experiences. And through that, you kind of create your own, your own feelings towards yourself and other people. And I, if, if, if my parents weren't, I mean, like my dad, when I got off the bus and I was no joke, punched in the face six times, Mm. I did not fight back. And the reason, the only reason why, was because my father said, you do not hit another person. You do not do that. He was a firm believer in that. You know, you go tell someone. I remember getting off the bus, calling him and telling him. He was didn't, he didn't know what to do. Now it's here. And he called the, the a chapter of the NWCP in our hometown, and they also agreed with him. They said, do not fight. Don't, you know, don't, don't use, you know, more anger with anger. And, you know, we ended up just going to the school and the girl ended up getting expelled. But um, that's all. That was my environment. To me, that's a healthy way to react. But if you've got the opposite and you go home and your parents are like, oh, you know what? Well, you better go and just take a knife and go, you know, blah, blah, blah. Or it's something negative or we're going to go and beat them up. That is implanted in you. You look up to those people. So very much it's the home. There's so much going on. And I hope it's okay that I'm so political and social right now. But... There's just so much going on in the schools these days that I, I'm terrified of, of how it's changed. Um, what, what would you recommend? Because you said that your the parents that adopted you were both white. Is yeah. that correct? So uh-huh. what, yep. what would you recommend? Like, let's just say we, and we do, we have a lot of white listeners. We have a white listener now that is adopting, you know, a black child or biracial child. What would you recommend that they look for or have some sensitivity toward when it comes to raising them? Yeah, number one thing, and I've spoken about this in different support groups um, uh, with uh, adults that that are that have adopted again transracial adoptions. My number one advice is communication, mm-hmm. being completely open and honest with your child, because my parents they know everything about me. They are so, we are like probably too open, but it's because they never hid anything from me. Mm -hmm. And I think so many times with adoption, when you hide something from family members or anybody, that means that, that, that there's something negative, something, right? To hide implies that you're, you're hiding something that is not good. So to, to allow open, full communication, is I think the most essential thing, no matter how uncomfortable it is, because you're getting into a situation that is uncomfortable and makes other people uncomfortable. And it will be like that always. Once you accept that and also tell your child that and find ways to cope with it and, and, and help other people, educate them, educate them. They're just ignorant. That's it because they don't know better. That's so much of it. So for me, it's that. And then also making sure if you're adopting a black child or an Asian child and you're white or vice versa, you better go have some Asian, black, Native American friends or something because that's right. something that's me as a, as a child, as an adult now. I remember saying, because I uh, read an article on uh, NPR or heard an article on NPR maybe six months ago about a biracial man now living in New York. I think he's an author adopted by white parents in the 70s. And his mm-hmm. big thing as an adult now was, why don't you guys have any black friends growing up? Why didn't I understand my blackness? And that's the same with my parents. And there's, I don't fault them for that, but I didn't understand my blackness. I did not have one black role model at all until I was in my, like, 19. And that was college. My parents had no black friends, you know? And it's like, then why do you want to adopt kids that are of color? Mm -hmm. And my parents always say, well, we didn't look at race. And that's something that white people say. Only white people freaking say that. I'm sorry, but it's true. 
Like, nobody else <laughs> says you don't see it. Like, you yeah. do. It's a yeah. fact. It's not a bad thing, but let's just be real. You haven't had to deal with it. Then you're going to have a child who is going to have to deal with it. And right. you won't, you don't have to. You don't know what that is. So acknowledging that and making sure to have strong role models of color in their life. Yeah. Make sure they're exposed to different things. Make sure they know that you are not better than them and that their skin color doesn't define them, but they need to know their history. I have many issues with my identity because I didn't get that, you know, and, and yeah, so that's, I don't even know if that answers your question, but, um, man, it, and that, and knowing that it is a challenge, it is a beautiful challenge. And I do believe that at the end of the day, having a family is more important than skin color completely, completely bypasses all of that. However, because we live in a society that we have racism, you will be exposed to it. And having your child of color and the parent not being is very challenging. But it can be done, and um, I always I, – I love it. I love all of this. I just want people to be honest with themselves and kind of go, am I prepared to do this? If I am a white woman adopting a black baby boy, right, and he grows up to be a six-foot-tall black man, can yes. I protect him? Right. What is that going to be if he is six-foot-tall and I am a five-two white, blonde-haired woman, and that is my child? He's going to experience things that you have no idea. Look at what's going on in Ferguson, you know, and people don't care at that point. They won't know that he came from a white family. They won't. They're seeing a black man. Mm. None of that matters anymore. And that's the issues. That's the truth of our society, parts of it, that that you have to look at and go, can I do this? Am I willing to do this? Right. And one thing that you touched on was just images of black role models um, one example for me is my, my nephew, he's five years old and he's all about Spider-Man. Yes. And, <laughs> and, um, so his mom had emailed me, letting me know she had shown me pictures of him on his birthday celebrating with uh, Spider-Man. And she said, Hey, you know, if you have any Spider-Man gear, let me know. I'm like, are you kidding me? I have Spider-Man everywhere. Let me know what he wants. <laughs> so she, um, you know, said, oh, he loves Peter Parker. And I sent him a comic book of Peter Parker, this, you know, big storybook. Hmm. But I also sent him a comic book with Miles Morales. Ooh, because I okay. think it's very important to also show, you know, Spider-Man as also a young, you know, Afro-Latina kid, you yep. know, Afro-Latino kid that's out there that's, you know, looks exactly like him. And I, I just think that that's really important. So, um Yes, imagery and models, they really do matter and they really do shape who you are. And and for me as well, like growing up in a predominantly white neighborhood, I didn't really understand the diversity of black culture until I went to college and went to a historically black, yeah, Yeah. HBCU, NSU represent, go Spartans. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) um, So yeah, it it wasn't until then that I had my sort of aha moment um, Mm -hmm. of black culture because unfortunately, you know, when you're living in a predominantly white town, um, you know, there's there's a lot of negative imagery um, yes. out there and there's a lot of negative perceptions of what yes. it is to be black. So yes. I'm glad you touched on those points. No, I have course. a yeah, I have a question here on Twitter um, also talking about transracial adoptions from our BGM mm-hmm. podcast. Um, wants to know, what do you think about the recent media representation of transracial adoptions from um, the Shonda Rhimes show? Uh, I think this is from Grey's Anatomy in particular. Yeah, I mean, again, I think all of that is great because it's not – I didn't grow up with that. So your viewers are able to see that this is a thing um, mm-hmm. that is very much just like any other adoption or any other kind of family. And, mm-hmm. there, you know, the way that Shonda does it, it, it is truthful for that moment, like, they go there, they bring up kind of the issues of what's going to happen. And I don't feel like she makes it, because here's the thing, I think a lot of people, when they see, especially, you know, a white couple adopting a black child, mm-hmm. I think it's kind of like, oh, the savior thing, the white supremacy, you know, coming to save the day, save the black people, you know? <laughs> you, but it's you know, really that that, oh, they're not going to have a better life until white people come in and save them and make them have a better home. Mm-hmm. And 
And I don't think that's true. Again, everybody has their different take, but they do show that a little bit on Grey's Anatomy. They do show some of the struggle. And for me, that's really important. I'm so excited about it. That's not exactly my story, but it makes me happy to know that the story is being told. And at the end of the day, for me, that's all that matters. Shedding light onto truth. 100%. Right, right. You, um, I, speaking of, of Shonda Rhimes, cause she got pretty angry recently on Twitter, uh, mm-hmm. due to the recent deadline article. And here you are, you know, you're a working black woman in Hollywood. I wanted to know what your opinion was on the recent deadline article where the writer believes that there is quote, too much diversity in Hollywood. Um, first of all, what are your thoughts about the article? And second, what has been your experience with finding work in this industry? Well, first off, my birthday was on Tuesday, and my parents came um, and spent the week with me in Los Angeles. I was watching, I think it was on entertainment or something, my parents, uh, we were all watching it together, and this comes on, the, the, mentioning this article. No joke, I start hysterically laughing and going, wait, what? Wait, 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 Dad, did you just hear this? Mom, did you just hear this? They're saying too much diversity? Are they out of their mind? So that, no joke, was my, I had a guttural reaction to it. I laughed out loud and was like, who says this? Like, I don't even understand. It, it is so crazy because we actually have diversity now. Like, that should be a normal thing. Like, normal. Yep. And because we have fresh off the boat. We've got how to get away with murder. It's It's like, and they're just telling stories. Jane the Virgin. We aren't telling stories of just black people or Latinos. We're telling just stories. We are right. all in this country. What, I think, what is it, do, I think, what is the statistic, like 30%, uh, I think, or do black people make up 30% of the population? I just read some article, was on Newsweek, there was something about that, and again, mm-hmm. only like 5%, 5 or 15, you guys can, I mean, don't quote me, obviously, but it was something not even matching, like, what the diversity was in the United States, didn't even match that on TV. It's just ludicrous. And to me, that's just because they haven't seen it done before. It seems like a lot, obviously, to this writer um, and maybe to some people in middle America that haven't been exposed to it. But the truth of the matter is, it is not like that. There's not enough diversity still. And I experience it every day. I have not been able to play a black role um, since I've moved here. I'm not considered black out here, you know, which is totally fine. I embrace being mixed race. That's I embrace all of who I am. But I also think I should be able to play a black role, a Latin role, a white role. And that's just not how it is. Um, so I have a very hard time in Hollywood um, playing, getting jobs, I think, sometimes um, them not quite knowing where to put me. And it's getting better, but it's definitely, it's the first time that I wish I was like one thing. I'm like, man, I wish I was just like all black, you know, and like looks like Kerry Washington because that's the people that are that's what Hollywood we all want to look like Harry Washington. Well, <laughs> she's just gorgeous. But that's what they think of now is like the, you know, the type for a black woman. And I don't look like that at all, you know? Um, and then the Latinos or the Latinas, it's kind of like, I mean, in New York, I look more like the Puerto Ricans and Dominicans, but out here it's more Mexican and it's kind of like the Ava Longoria types. Um, you know, so it's just, it's, it's a journey and I'm in the thick of it right now. And uh, my biggest thing is not to harbor any kind of bitterness and to create roles where they're kind of like, you know what? Santana is so good. I don't even care. I'm going to change this role for her. She's just going to be able to do it because I can't say no to her talent. And that's all I care about right now and keep creating my own work. Based off of your experience, do you find that there's a high level of white supremacy in Hollywood or is Hollywood just all about capital and focusing on what makes the most money? Well, I think they go hand in hand. Hmm. I mean, because they, it is about any business wants to make money. So, I mean, every business wants to make money, the most money they can possibly make. It's a business. So within that, if, because Hollywood is, is, bred upon white actors, white producers, white casting directors. The whole thing was built on white people, kind of, at least what everyone viewed as white people began this. Mm. Um, And that white actors were the ones who, you know, made the most money. However, they weren't giving other people a shot. 
So again, that's a whole other thing, but that's what it was built upon, I believe. And so that's what, you know, a lot of people to this day believe will only make money is having a white lead, male or female. And that giving that to anybody else, it could be a problem and not make money. So they go hand in hand because it is about making money, but then their think their thinking is having the white person. And if they're going to branch off of that, they don't know what's going to happen. And everyone in Hollywood is so afraid every day that they're not going to have a job next month. We're all freelancers. Nothing is ever set. You know, uh, you pick a pilot's picked up, you know, for let's say four episodes and then it's cut. You did all this work. Then you're out of work and everybody's out of work, you know? So I just think that people in Hollywood stay the same and keep doing the same routine sometimes and don't want to take that risk because of the unknown. And they they do what works. And what works for them usually is having the Brad Pitts in the leads, you know, and the Julia Roberts in the leads. And they're getting so much better. My gosh, so much better. But that's kind of how I feel it goes. Do you feel like TV is a little bit more progressive now than film is at this point? Well, for me, I feel like I see more diversity on TV lately, Mm -hmm. but I still kind of feel like film takes a bigger risk. Um, I haven't booked any, you know, like, uh, what do they call like the main networks, like ABC, NBC, CBS, uh, and compared to like the HBO direct TV stuff, you know, there's a difference in it. Um, and, but then I booked films, I booked a lot of indie films. I've booked, you know, some bigger films. And then all the TV I've done has been HBO and DirecTV, which are known for taking risk. So I'm a product that is the TV world is is not open so much to me. Um, I don't know. I'm not sure, to be honest. I, I mean, TV, I feel like we see it more. It's more talked about right now. Yeah. We have so many new shows, but I don't know if that's the actual truth. Mm, okay. Yeah. So, but, so from an actor's perspective, you haven't had that experience, but what we're seeing, it's a little different. Yes. But I do have friends. Like I just had, um, uh, why am I not thinking of her name right now? Oh my goodness. Great. She just booked, she's the first, um, lead black woman, Corbin. Is it Corbin? The new pilot, uh, that got, uh, it's not picked up, but it's for CW. Um, she's the first black and she's, she's biracial, but black, um, actress and a lead on a CW show. Um, she's filming it right now. And, um, so that's huge. So I have friends that are doing big things and are breaking boundaries and that is for TV. So, you know, I I don't even know how to answer the question now. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I got another question for you. This is from the seventh matrix on Twitter. Wants to know, would Ms. Dempsey ever consider creating a web series since that medium seems to have more opportunity for people of color? Yeah, totally. Do you want to write something with me? (laughs) (laughs) there you go seven matrix get on it (laughs) you know we actually with that i will just kind of give a plug because it goes right with it i am doing a a web series uh called life's a drag and Mm. uh, the two leads myself and ian verdun he's um another biracial mixed baby um we play the two leads he is the creator and the writer in it and that will premiere on april 13th and we have so much diversity in it and uh we are doing that so, so thank you. Yeah, it is a great platform and they are more open to diversity. Yeah, absolutely. Um, a little bit on a lighter note, I, I yeah. wanted to ask you this question. Actually, it's a very serious question for us here on the Black Girl Nerds podcast. Oh my Do you consider yourself to be a nerd or a geek? And what kind of fandoms are you into? Oh man. Okay. So I consider myself to be a nerd. Okay. Now, Geek, you know, the only reason I don't like geek is I think of Urkel. Now, I can do that, okay? I can do that. I mean, my last movie I did, that's what I was. But I'm more of, I'm a nerd. I think nerd is a little lighter. It's kind of like I'm into things that, you know, like musicals and, you know, things like that. Um, As for fandom, okay, can I tell you something? I didn't really know what that was. I had to look that up. <laughs> Meaning, maybe I'm not a nerd because I was like, oh, shoot balls. But I well, really am a nerd. Like well, I, but I don't get, I don't have anything that I'm so obsessed over. That's something okay. kind of. So then you know. are a nerd then. Oh, am Cause, I? Because oh, the, cool. the difference, the <laughs> difference, the difference between a geek and a nerd is a geek is someone who is obsessed with fandoms. So someone that's obsessed with all things Star Trek, a Trekkie would oh, be considered a geek. Me. That's not. Me. Yeah. 
But a nerd, it's more your personality, you know, who you are, your style. Yeah, like, I, I, I snort a lot, and I say kind of, like, <laughs> off-the-wall things, but I don't mean to say them, and people think they're funny. So, yeah, I'm a nerd. I'm definitely a nerd, because I didn't even know what fandom was. So, I looked it up on Wikipedia <laughs> before you called. <laughs> well, is there is there anything, um, any particular? Well, you, well, you are a theater geek. You're all about the... Oh, I am a theater geek. That is yeah. true. I am a theater yeah. geek, and I know tons of musicals. I'm a big runner. I'm a geek uh-huh. with, like, running. Uh, and, like, and also, like, history. Like, I love history, and, like, I love art. Like, Art Nouveau, and, like, any kind of, like, abstract, you know, um, like, I love, what am I trying to say? I love Picasso, and I love, yeah, so, and I love museums. Is that nerdy? Yes. Oh, okay. Well, those are things I love. <laughs> I just thought they were, like, cool, you know. You know, it's it's all in how you see it. So it's it's nerdy or cool, whatever you you feel comfortable with. <laughs> or they're both, because being a nerd is cool. It there you go. Yes. Who I am, I own it. <laughs> well, do you do you actively engage in in live tweeting? I see you're on Twitter, but have you ever participated in live tweeting many of the shows that you've starred in? Two times I've done live tweeting. One for HBO's The Newsroom, and then just so you know, earlier, but it's it's not you. Uh, the movie that I did for Lifetime in February was called Mega Church Murder. It mm-hmm. used to be called Shaker Point, but they Lifetime and everybody changed the name in January, um, which was a total shock to us, but just so you know. So live tweeting I did for Mega Church and for the newsroom. It was my first time. It was so fun, nice. but I'm still kind of trying to understand Twitter. I want to get better, and I see that you guys tweet a lot, but yep. I don't understand, like, how people follow you and, like, why. And then trying to join their conversation, and I just gets really confusing. I just like Instagram. It's like simple. Let's post a photo. I don't have time. Let's move on. And Facebook a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> well, you but, know, that, well, for me, it, it's the geek in me that loves all things social media. I'm not really on Instagram a lot because I don't oh, like posting I pictures of myself. I find you too. Yeah, you gotta get on it. It is so much. Maybe it's because it's a little more removed. I don't feel like. I can be attacked or anything like on uh, Instagram, you know? Um, yeah, yeah. It's an inst or I'm not sorry, not Instagram on Twitter. Like Twitter is like very political and social, and I like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. But I don't know if I want to call like attention to it in my daily life when I already have that going on, you know? Right, right. Yeah. So well, then, stay on Instagram then, because uh, okay. Twitter. <laughs> you like Twitter, guys? Really? I even I've been kind of trying to tweet now. Well. Well, before the show. Yeah. We, <laughs> and, and we got, right now. <laughs> we, we got your Twitter handle. So, so folks know where to find you on Twitter. Um, I, I, I do want to say, first of all, thank you so much for, for being on the show. We're at the top of the hour now. Um, any social media shout outs as well as any projects that you're currently working on or future projects, um, that we can find you and, and your website where, where we can learn more about what you're doing. Yeah, so everything's honestly my name. It's at Santana Dempsey. That's uh, my handle for everything. And then just a shout-out again to the new web pilot called Life's a Drag. Uh, look them up as well. I think that's at Life's a Drag. If not, you should find it. I'm connected with it. I'm um, premiering April 13th. And just that, let's spread love, people. Like, mad, mad, mad love. And just self-love, too, you know? That's what I want to say. Absolutely. Yes, indeed. Well, San and Tana Dempsey, thank you so, so much for, for coming on the Black Girl Nerds podcast. A lot of great feedback on Twitter. Folks love you. Oh, good. I hope they, I was like, they're going to hate me when I talk truth, but I was like, I'm just going to stay my story. No, you were spitting some real truth that was very enlightening. And a lot of us actually had similar experiences to yours growing up. So, so thank you for sharing that. Cause sometimes we think we're the only ones yep. and it's always good to hear another voice that went through the same thing. Um, so thank you for, for sharing that. Um, and stay tuned next week, guys. We are going to have the team from Swagless and the City, uh, to join us on the Black Girl Nerds podcast. Co-host will be Latanya that will be joining us. So stay tuned for that next Sunday at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Thanks for tuning in tonight, guys. Bye. See you later. Finally, I'm finally free. Finally, I'm finally me.